Um, why don't we um, turn in our Bibles now to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 6. That's where we find ourselves again, Hebrews chapter 6. It feels like forever since we've been here. So I am eager and I am excited to get back to this place. Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, we're going to go down to verse 3. So if you thought that I was going to be handling the often controversial passage, verses 4 to 6, I am not, you have to come back to church next week for that. So, um, but this is essential and this is definitely part of it. Uh, Beginning in verse uh, 1, why don't we stand together as is our custom, I'm sorry to do that to you, but let's stand in, uh, in honor of the word of the living God and read it. Now read along with me if you would. Beginning in verse 1, this is what it says. This is what the word of the Lord says. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about the Christ, let us press on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands and the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment And this we will do if God permits. Pray one more time with me. Father, Lord, we ask your blessing on our time. And Lord, we we want to avail ourselves now of your blessing and ask you, God, to be here with us, among us, as we've gathered together for the purpose of hearing your word of fellowship. Lord, we pray that you would minister to us now through your very words. As Pastor Chris told us, when we read the Word of God, we are hearing directly from you. We're hearing from you. And so, God, I pray that you would help me to rightly discern your Word, to teach your Word as it ought to be taught. We give you all praise, Lord, and we ask above everything that Jesus Christ would be supremely magnified now. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. As I said, this portion of Scripture is essential to the context of the book of uh, Hebrews here. Uh, Hebrews is going to go on a pretty lengthy digression on the topic of apostasy. And so we've been looking at spiritual maturity lately. Beginning in verse 11, we talked about there this this, uh, description that is given to the the church that they've become dull of hearing. And as a consequence, the church is slipping into an infant-like state where they are failing to grow, they are failing to mature. And so let me just begin with a, a few preliminary observations, and that is that for any biblical church, part of being in a biblical church is that the church is honest with itself, that the leaders are honest with the church and where they are spiritually speaking. Paul does this all over the, the uh Uh, the letters that he's written. For example, look with me in Galatians. Galatians chapter 3, for example. Galatians chapter 3, the apostle there, noticing that the church has begun to go in the wrong direction, he points it out to them. He says in verse 1, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing of faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? 
Now, obviously, we know the issue at work with, uh, or the issue at hand in Galatians is a little bit different than what's going on in Hebrews, but the principle is the same. The church is not going in a healthy direction. There is a potential for disaster. So, for example, chapter 1 of Galatians uh, very clearly lays out the prospect for danger. In verse 6, you know this passage. It says, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one that we've preached to you, he is to be accursed, as we have said before, so I say again now, if any, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, he is to be accursed. There, setting forth very, quick, very clearly to the Galatians the problems at hand, doctrinal problems, problems that affect the gospel, problems that affect the orthodoxy, of the church, but it can be other, other things than that. Um, I'm reminded of 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, just to show you really the, what I think is the pastoral heart behind Hebrews. Whether Paul wrote it or not, and just regardless of where you are on that debate, when I first introduced the letter of Hebrews, what I did make very clear about the author of Hebrews is that he was an apostolically connected individual and that he was a pastor, that he had a pastoral heart. I think the heart behind the book of Hebrews is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 as well, where the Apostle Paul there, very insightful, because if you remember anything about our time in 2 Corinthians, you remember that the church of Corinth at this time is grappling with all sorts of problems, problem after problem after problem, so much so that you would think, wow, this is... This is a church? <laughs> this is a church of, that Paul planted? Yeah, this is very common in the New Testament times, churches with many, 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 many problems, and uh, sometimes even challenging us a little bit to, to, to sort of reconcile how is it possible that apostolically planted churches are riddled with problems? Well, that's the nature of the kingdom of God now, my dear friends. This is what theologians would say. We are in the state where the church is in a, in a militant state, where we have to battle spiritually, where we are engaged in warfare, as it were. We are not the church triumphant yet. We are not in glory. We, are not, we, have, not, we have yet to reach Canaan's shore. Right now, we're still going to be riddled with problems, and so we have to be on our guard Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 19, all this time you've been thinking that we are defending ourselves to you. Actually, it is in the sight of God that we have been speaking in Christ and all for your upbuilding, beloved. That's the purpose of Hebrews' exhortation, upbuilding, to build you up, not to discourage you, not to beat you down, not to condemn you. He goes on, for I am afraid that perhaps when I come, I may find you not to be what I wish and to be made found by you to be not what you wish. Interesting way of saying that. In other words, we're going to be out of sorts. We're going to be out of sync. We're not going to be in a loving, uh, unifying relationship. He says, perhaps there will be strife, jealousy, angry tempers, disputes, slanders, gossips, arrogance, disturbances. I'm afraid that when I come again, my God may humiliate me before you. 
and that I may mourn over many of those who have sinned in the past and not repented of the impurity, immorality, sensuality which they have practiced. Why do I read all of this? I read all of that to show us the pastoral heart behind these sorts of admonitions, that always behind all of these exhortations is the purpose of purity, to purify the church. That's what we're looking at here in uh, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1, when, when, or even before that in chapter 5, verse 11, all of this language about immaturity. You may feel as if the author is being hard on these people, almost sarcastically shaming these people. You've come to need milk. You can't even handle solid food. You need the milk. You're like a baby. You need the bottle again. You can't be given a steak. I can't give you filet mignon because you're a child and you can't handle it. But this is a spiritual way. These are metaphors that he's using to illustrate to them the unhealthy state in which they find themselves. And so the author of Hebrews is out for their good, not their grief. He doesn't want to shame them. He wants them to grow. He wants to sanctify them, not shame them. But also, this is all reminiscent of the apostle uh, here in Hebrews and what he's been talking about in terms of perseverance. Turn with me to uh, chapter 4 of Hebrews quickly. Uh, Chapter 4 of Hebrews, beginning in verse 14, he's repeated this over and over and over. But he says here, therefore, in uh, chapter 4, verse 14, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. And that is the concern of the author of Hebrews, that these folks are not holding fast to the confession. They are slipping, and their spiritual infancy is an evidence of that. It is an evidence of that. That is why the fellowship and the one another's of the local church are so important. Look with me again in chapter 3 of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 3, beginning in verse 12, this is where we need each other. You don't just need a pastor. You need everyone in this church. You need your brothers. You need your sisters. You need people in your life encouraging you, keeping you accountable, admonishing you in this way. Take care, brethren, he says, chapter 3, verse 12, that there there be not in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. See, the, uh, the stakes couldn't be any higher We are talking about apostasy. And what is the remedy to apostasy? What is the means that God has chosen to use to keep you holding fast to your confession? Verse 13, but encourage one another day after day as long as it is called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. I've done uh, quite a bit of convalescent home ministry. I don't know if you've ever done that. I used to go and minister to folks that were, well, so advanced in age, they needed everybody to take care of them and do everything for them. And there was a couple of people that I used to visit that were real memorable. One was an old Dodger from the 30s, uh, and uh, uh, he never came to faith in Christ. And um, uh, the last time I checked with him, he had passed away, so I don't know what happened uh, to the state of his soul. But there was another uh, person there. Her name was Naomi, a 95-year-old saint of God who was so filled with God that I would go there to encourage her, and she would end up encouraging me. She was a woman of the Word. She memorized the Word. She memorized hymns. You'd start singing a hymn, and she'd start finishing the hymn. 
She forgot almost everything about her life, but you talk, start talking about Scripture, and she would rattle off the Scripture to you. She couldn't walk. She could hardly move. She would shake. She had all of these problems, but boy, she had the joy of the Lord. And one thing she used to always tell us was that she was so grateful that we were there to encourage her. How long are you going to need encouragement as a Christian? As long as you live. That's how long. Even if you're on your deathbed, even if you're 100 years old and you're sitting in a convalescent home, you're still going to need the encouragement of the body. Because so long as you are in the flesh, you are, you, you are assaulted by all sorts of enemies. You have the enemy of your soul. You have the adversary. You have indwelling sin. You have the world that is constantly vying for your affection. And so we constantly, constantly need to be encouraged. Encourage one another as long as it is called today so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, but there is a problem. Verse 11 of chapter 5. Concerning Jesus and his Melchizedekian priesthood, we have much to say, but it is hard to explain, since you have become dull of hearing. He goes on to explain in this context that what he's talking about is that their powers of discernment are not sharp enough to receive the instruction that he wants to give them. That's what he says in, uh, in verse 13. They are not accustomed to the word of righteousness. And in verse 14, they, they haven't practiced to the point of making their senses trained to be able to discern good and evil. You see why spiritual maturity is so important? Is because you're going to need it. You're going to need to be on the trajectory of growth, not, the, not, not the, the, the trajectory of stagnation and regression. You're going to need to be growing in the Christian life. You're not going to need to be stagnant. You're not going to need to throw it in neutral, folks. It's always got to be in drive. You always got to be behind the wheel. You always have to be cognizant of your spiritual condition. You have to always be monitoring your life. After all, that is exactly what the Apostle Paul tells Timothy. Paul tells Timothy in, uh, in, in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16, he says, Play, pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things, for as you do this, you will ensure salvation both for yourself and for those who hear you. Now, of course, this is spoken to a pastor, but by extension, every single person in here should be paying close attention to yourself to see where you are, to have an honest assessment of your spiritual condition. This is precisely what the author of Hebrews would want for this church, that they would have an honest assessment of their spiritual condition so that they can be not only growing, but after growing, they can be instructed in a mature fashion which they are presently incapable of receiving. And what's, what's, what's amazing to me, I don't know if you think about this, but what's amazing to me is after he tells them, look, you need milk, not meat, he still gives them meat. <laughs> he still preaches in such a way where he knows the, the spiritual babes in the church, as it were, are going to receive something from what he teaches 
but he doesn't fail to instruct the mature. Spurgeon said, preach for the best of your hearers. Everybody will benefit in that fashion. But he zeroes in on this exhortation. Beginning in verse 11, going all the way to verse uh, 1 of chapter 6, we finally get to the first imperative. Look at what he says. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching of the Christ. That's a participle that is not an imperative. This is the imperative. Let us press on. You see that? Let us press on to maturity. That's the imperative. He says, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. Now, he's going to give here six foundational things that this church wants to keep honing in on, not getting past, not getting beyond these things, but needing again, as he says in the, in, at the end of chapter 5, you need someone to teach you again, he says. See, it's this reiteration. They're not getting it. No matter how many times they hear it, they're just not grasping the truth of what he's saying. And they're focusing in on these issues. And I think these are sort of these are sort of emblematic. In other words, these may not be the entirety of the story, but these are just some of the issues the pastor knows about that they are honing in on, that they are not choosing to go beyond, and so he, he raises them for, for them. There are six things. Number one, repentance from dead works. Number two, faith toward God. Number three, instruction about washings or baptisms. Number four, laying on of hands. Number five, the resurrection of the dead. And number six, eternal judgment. Well, those are, that's a lot. When have I ever preached a six-point sermon? <laughs> Not too often. But what exegetes have done is they've broken these up into groups of three. Or, or, or uh, there's three groups of two, rather. There's the evangelistic, there's the ceremonial, and there's the eschatological. The evangelistic grouping, let's take that one first, is repentance from dead works and faith toward God. And so what the author is saying here is not minimize the importance of repentance. That's not what he's calling for. He's not saying to ignore the doctrine of conversion, repentance, and faith. We just taught on conversion in our Sunday school. We were going through the order salutis. We got to the issue of repentance. We, we, we talked in depth about what that looks like, what it means, what the scriptures teach, and we got into some you know, great theological depth concerning conversion. He is not calling them to altogether abandon these subjects. This is what he's saying. Take these subjects up, but take them all the way up. Don't just talk about repentance in its relationship between the Jewish covenant, the old covenant, and the new covenant, and whether or not you, you grasp and believe and, and the nature of it and how you relate the two, but you've got to go beyond same thing with the resurrection. We know that the Jews struggled with the resurrection. And so some might have been tempted to think, do we believe this new doctrine about the resurrection, the new dynamics, the new teachings, the apostolic teaching and instruction regarding the, the resurrection? Or are they still hung up on some of the old Jewish tradition? We're not told. We can only speculate. So what I want to say is that on each one of these matters, what the author is calling us to do is to build on these things. So number one, building on repentance and faith. What is repentance and faith? Well, repentance and faith is the, 
is sort of the uh, initiation point into the faith. It is how you become a Christian. It's how you're introduced to the faith by conversion, we could say. So repentance toward, from dead works and faith toward God. Speaking of the one reality that is known as conversion. And so this is what the author wants them to get. Not just to talk about repentance, but to go beyond that and understand the Christological implications of this repentance. If we don't do this, what might end up happening is we might have an unhealthy emphasis on something like personal testimony, evangelistic meetings. I mean, do you know of any churches who don't go beyond evangelism in the service? where all they emphasize is how to be saved, but they never go on to maturity. They never emphasize systematic theology. They never exposit the Word of, of, the word of God, line by line, exposition of the Word of God. They're always stuck on an evangelistic rally, and they're always trying to rally people up to come forward and receive Christ and the altar call and the whole bit, but they never move on to understanding how and why repentance and faith is so important. And under the new covenant, what does it mean? What is its emphasis? What is its center? Well, obviously, for the apostles, there was no such thing as repentance and faith without Jesus Christ. There was no such thing as shuva, renewal, uh, in the Jewish concept, now in the new covenant without Christ. Uh, Philip E. Hughes, if you don't have Philip Hughes' commentary on Hebrews and you want a good commentary on the book of Hebrews, Philip E. Hughes is a good one. This is what he says. Faith in Christ is faith toward God. He says, and this involves the reversal of ungodliness of, sin, uh, of sinful man, which expresses itself, as Paul observes, in the suppression of the truth about God the denial of His eternal and sovereign power, and the refusal to honor Him as God or give thanks to Him for His goodness. In other words, faith in God, that phrase where He says repentance toward, of de from dead works and faith toward God, now must be understood under the new covenant Christologically. That now it's, you're, putting, you're repenting from your sin and you're turning to God, which means you're turning to faith in Jesus Christ. That's what it means. And what about this next, um, what about this next group, the baptisms and the laying on of hands? You notice that word there. If you have an NASB, it says washings, Right? And that's right because the Greek word here is baptismos, which is uh, uh, plural. It's not singular. He's not talking about baptism. He's talking about the many baptisms that the Jewish people would have been accustomed to, and especially these new covenant believers coming into the new covenant, struggling with the relationship of Jewish baptism, Jewish washing, and now, once again, Christologically, I really do believe all of these issues now have a Christological element that this church is just not getting. And that's why he has to raise the issue to them. But how many baptisms are there in the Bible? Doesn't, doesn't Paul say in Ephesians there's one baptism? Well, there are many baptisms. That's soteriologically. There's one baptism into the body of Christ that saves the, the baptism of the Spirit into the body that saves you. But 
we know from Scripture that there are many, many baptisms. Not only are there Old Testament Levitical washings that may have qualified for what the author is talking about, but we also know that there was the baptism of repentance in John. In, in Acts chapter 19, you see it, for example. Why don't you turn there with me? But in Acts chapter 19, you have a debate regarding baptism, or at least having to do with baptism. Acts chapter 19 you see that in verse 3 when uh, the Apostle Paul comes across certain disciples of John the Baptist. He asks them this. He asks them, into what were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. So the Apostle Paul is asking a question about the baptism, which in his mind probably is soteriological baptism, baptism that saves, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And then they mention the baptism of John, which is a, a baptism that was a more of a preparatory baptism that John was preaching uh, in, in, in the wilderness as he's preparing for the Messiah, getting Israel ready for its Messiah, which, of course, many did not find. And then you also find a reference to the baptism in Jesus' name. Look at verse 5. He says, after they believed him who was coming, excuse me, in verse 5, yeah. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So now you have the baptism of John, you have the baptism of uh, in Jesus' name, and if you take this whole coming upon them with the Holy Spirit, which was also a baptism with the Spirit, then you have different elements of baptisms. But that is not at all what the author of Hebrews is grappling with. What he is grappling with is failing to get beyond the controversy surrounding baptism and moving on to richer and fuller and, and, and more Christological implications of what baptism is and what baptism symbolizes. They probably were not enjoying the union with Christ that baptism symbolizes, that Romans chapter 6 talks about that we were buried with Him in baptism, that our spiritual baptism, and then, of course, our water baptism symbolizes our union with Christ. But notice there's another element here. This is why I said that he focuses on these three groups. One is evangelistic, the other is ceremonial, baptism, and laying on of hands. The laying on of hands, like baptism, was primarily outward. It was associated with the outward manifestation of healing in the Bible, and also it was associated with the commissioning of certain people for a certain task or certain office, like a pastor or missionaries being sent out, like in Acts chapter 13. But today, you hear that the laying of hands is, I think, the laying of hands is grossly abused. It's almost as if mystical powers have been, has been given to the laying on of hands, especially among Pentecostal, more charismatic expressions. The laying on of hands has almost become sort of a sacerdotal sort of mystical thing that imparts to you some power or some grace. And so, again, these folks were were confused. They were, they were honing in on something external and not moving on to what it's all about. What, what are these things all about? Maybe, maybe if we look at it from our perspective, since this is sort of a, one of them is dealing with the ordinance of the church, baptism. The other one, the conferring of a ministry. And so maybe for us, we might think about the controversies that we have in our day regarding the mode of baptism, whether it's 
infant baptism, whether it's believer's baptism, and we can get bogged down into those things. And let me tell you something. I love listening to James White's debates on baptism. <laughs> I really do. But if you heard me week after week after week after week still grappling with the issue of baptism, you would be right in coming to me and saying, brother, okay, you need to move on from baptism. I understand it's an interesting debate, and James White's a great debater, but you need to move on now to something more rich and something more uh, 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 you know, deep, not just talking about the controversy of baptism, but what is baptism all about and getting to the Christological aspect. Same thing for the Lord's Supper, the modalities, the manner in which to take the Lord's Supper. If we take baptism as a principle for the ordinances of the church, oh, we are so good as Christians, right, at debating all of these ecclesiastical little minutiae. How do you take the Lord's Supper? Should you use real wine? Why do you use grape juice? When did, what century did that start happening? And we go into all of these things. And there are some that believe in infant communion, give communion to your baby. We're not going to start that tradition here. How do you even do that? You put it in the bottle? Or, I mean, what? Dip it on the finger? I mean, I don't know what, how you would do it. But we can get bogged down with all of these issues without ever growing past it. Without ever growing. I wonder if you'd approach these believers in Hebrews to say, I understand that you're all wrapped up on this thing on baptism and laying on of hands. Can you define to me the doctrine of justification? I wonder how many of them would be able to do it. What is propitiation and how does that affect the atoning work of Christ? Oh, well, you, I've been studying baptism. <laughs> There's only so long you can stay on something like that before you need to move on. What about the last one? The last one on eschatology. Christian, Christians don't fight about eschatology, right? We have that all figured out. But eschatology apparently was an issue that they were not getting beyond. It says not laying on of hands. He says the resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. So just like we need to build on the foundation of baptism, the laying on of hands, these outward uh, expressions, at the same time, the eschatology is something that we have to build on. You know, <clears throat> I knew an individual who was so obsessed. It would, be, it would be unfair to call it anything else. He was so fixated on the doctrine of eschatology, that is literally all he ever spoke of. Don't try to figure out who it is because it's nobody in this church. I'm going, I'm going years back now, but every time I I'd, I'd talk to this individual, he's always trying to pin the tail on the Antichrist. He's always trying to figure out what the, what the, the, the UN is doing or what the latest, you know, G20 summit is all about, or, you know, what, you know, what's going on in Europe, and, you know, is Islam, you know, the system of the Antichrist, you know, whatever. What is Russia doing? Gog and Magog, you know, Bible in one hand, newspaper in the other hand. And you know what? I never really had any fellowship with that individual on things like, what about sanctification? How are you doing with the Lord? Like, how's your piety? How's your holiness? How's your prayer? How's your study of the Bible going? Everything has everything to do with this conspiracy theory about, you know, I don't want to give his eschatology away because then you're going to get angry at me for attacking a certain eschatology. Maybe you've already figured it out, but at any rate, it just shows you that as believers, we can get so sidetracked and we can get so fixated on one thing. Let me bring it home to us, good 
Calvinist Reformed types. I tell you what, there's only so long you should be in the cage stage of Calvinism, going around and fighting everybody on limited atonement and predestination and election. Now, that's good. There's a, not fighting, but it's good to learn those things. But if you're in the church and you're constantly debating these things, you're never able to move on. I've had several people come to us and say, um, Pastor, can I join Heritage Grace if I'm not a Calvinist? And I think, well, uh, yeah, sure, of course you can. So I'm not going to get attacked. That's what I'm asking. Well, no, you're not going to get attacked, but understand that everything I teach is from a you know, Calvinistic reform perspective. So it's not like we're going around attacking people that aren't there, but it, you know, but it informs everything that we do. That's sort of the way that I hope that everyone in this church will think about whatever doctrine that you're, that you're into is that you, you've wrestled with it, you've built on it, and now it's time to move on. It's time to go further, go into something else, go into something deeper, whether it's eschatology, whether it's sovereignty, whether it's the mode of baptism, whatever it may be, that you don't get hung up there so that then you're unfamiliar with how any other doctrine really works because you've stifled your own growth. He also talks about here the resurrection from the dead. We know from the Word of God that the Jews, prior to the new covenant, were greatly perplexed about the resurrection. Job says in Job 14, if a man dies, can he live again? And yes, he said, I will stand with my Redeemer on that day. But it's very clear from the New Testament that the Jews did not have a full-orbed, full-fleshed-out, fully developed doctrine of the resurrection. You see that in Acts chapter 23, verses 6 through 8, where the Sadducees and the Pharisees are still debating whether or not there is a resurrection. So you see confusion among the Jews of the first century. You see that they don't understand the fullness of it. And so for us, what does that mean for us? What that means is that Christ is how we build on the doctrine of the resurrection. When we focus on His resurrection, when we build on what the implications of Jesus' resurrection is all about, that's how we understand our resurrection. Knowing that we are united with Him, as Paul says in Romans 6, that if we are united with a death like His, we will be united with Him in in a resurrection like His. And I think that's what it means to build on the, resurrect, the doctrine of the resurrection, to see its Christological implications for your life. And also, eternal judgment. Eternal judgment. Eternal judgment is mentioned here to sort of generalize eschatology. Instead of one particular branch of thought in eschatology, eternal judgment is sort of the general way to sum it all up. How will all end? How, what the end of the world will be like? You remember Jesus in his ministry, how often people would ask him things concerning eschatology, right? And what, what type of, uh, who, whose person is this person, who, who's this person going to be married to in the, in, in, the new, in the new heavens, the new earth, in heaven, in the kingdom of God? Whose wife is this going to be? They were perplexed. They were confused. They didn't understand the nature of the eternal state. But in Christ, we understand these things. He gives us a fullness, a maturity when it comes to these things. Again, I want to 
I want to call on Philip Hughes to help me. He says, this judgment, eternal in its effect, means that the complete, means the complete annihilation or elimination of evil and its consequences from God's creation and the establishment of the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells, the glorious fulfillment, in other words, of all God's purposes in creation and the absolute vindication of His gracious and sovereign lordship. However these Hebrews were thinking about these eschatological matters, they were not seeing things apparently from a new covenant picture, but most probably from an old, a Jewish perspective, an old covenant standpoint, not from the riches of the new covenant. They weren't in the apostolic tradition, which that brings us back to what the author has taught in chapter 2. So turn to chapter 2 because I think that is the connection, is that they weren't listening Apparently, they were not grasping and they were not going forward with the message that they had heard. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4 says, For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we don't drift away. For if the word spoken through the angels proved unalterable and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, and this salvation is spoken of here in terms of the message that was preached. After it was first spoken, you see that? Through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those that heard the apostles and also testifying with them, that is the apostles, by signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to His own will. So revelation had come. The apostles had come and brought the fullness of revelation with them, had come and brought the fullness of the instruction that they're seeking. But apparently, they weren't listening. They were in danger of neglecting what they had heard. And therefore, last of all, I want to say we need to build not only on each one of these topics or any topic of theology. We need to build upon it. But last of all, I want to leave us with what the author leaves us here with, and that is that we have to build on the warning of Hebrews. Look at verse 3 again, because it is an interesting, interesting uh, saying that he leaves us with. This we will do if God permits. That to me is fascinating, because he's saying, let us press on to maturity, and then everything else is sort of parenthetical. Verse 3 is resumptive. And he, said, and he resumes here by saying, this we will do if God permits. We will move on to maturity if God permits. And some of us are thinking, well, throw your hands up in the air. Well, then what was that whole sermon about? If God permits, it, what if He doesn't permit? And then I don't move on to maturity. A couple of things. Yes, I believe that everything is under the decreed will of God and that God is sovereign over all things, whatever so happens to pass. But in the context, remember that this group of individuals has willfully become dull of hearing. And you know what? I have to be quite honest. I, I, I have actual pragmatic or practical examples of this. I know entire churches that just will not move on to maturity on certain issues. 
And I have to say at the end of the day, God has simply not permitted for whatever reason in all of his sovereign, mysterious will, he has simply not ordained that group of people to move on to greater theological depth and understanding. It's a bit fearful. And so we want to fear what the author is saying here because he's leaving us with this exhortation that maybe as a result of all of my neglect, maybe as a result of all of my spiritual laziness, maybe because I've neglected my Bible time and time and time again, even when I knew I should have picked my Bible up instead turning off the TV, pick the Bible up and study the Bible, but over and over I willfully neglected my soul for something else. And I got to tell you, as a consequence, it may be that God will not will for you to move on now. And that is dreadful. That is dreadful. He leaves us, I think, with a, a lot of encouragement. But boy, the book of Hebrews is not afraid of leaving us with fear and trembling. When he says, this we will do, look at the plural, this we will do if God permits. So he puts himself in their group. He collectively speaks of himself with them. And so some exegetes have wondered, is he saying that because of their unwillingness to grow, that not even he will be able to move them to maturity? I think what he's saying there is just a general way of speaking of the church at large, that the whole church now is suspect. Is it going to be able to move on? Do you know churches like that? When you just drive by them on the freeway and you scratch their head wondering if they're ever going to get it? They may not ever get it. They may always remain in that weak, shallow, seeker-sensitive, sensational, fluff, all of the, all of the shallow garbage that people are doing in the name of God, I was going to say behind the pulpit, but they don't even have a pulpit, where they're swinging through the rafters, they're bringing Harleys on stage, they're listening to secular music, calling it reaching out and being relevant, and you just scratch your head and you just think, has God just in His sovereign, in His sovereign decree, has He just affirmed them in that state and He's just going to leave them there? as a demonstration of his severity, as a demonstration of saying you don't trifle with the Word of God, but you move on to maturity when God is exhorting you, when people are admonishing you, when the church is being used in your life to spur you on to greater theological understanding, but yet you say, well, this is kind of the way I've always been. This is kind of the way I've always done things. I'm not really open to change. I don't really need to grow. I'm okay. Doctrine, that's for the scholars. I'm just a simpleton. No, simplicity of mind is never in the Bible called a virtue. Never. Being simple-minded is never called a virtue in the Bible. Everything in the Bible is about being filled with the knowledge of God, increasing in wisdom. The Proverbs speak about getting wisdom at all costs. Gain it wherever you can. Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, grow in grace. And many people are like, oh, yes, I need grace. That's only half the verse because Peter says, grow in grace and knowledge because without the knowledge, Paul says in Philippians 1, 11, you won't grow in discernment. 
And I tell you what, when I read this, where it says, this we will do if God permits, I felt so afraid for this church. Now I know these people are all dead now, but you know what I mean. I fear now for churches that might be in that state where God has, in a sense, given them over to their immaturity. Fine, you want milk? You want to stay immature? Then that's where I'm going to keep you. And you will be an example of what it means for God not to be willing to lead you to maturity. And so it's a fearful thing. In the Jewish worldview, everything was under the sovereign will of God. You remember what James says, James 4.15? You sh- Before you make your plans, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, I will do this or do that. We will live or do this or that. We are never to presume. We are always to submit ourselves to the ministry of God's or, or to the sovereignty of God. Now, I want you to turn to Philippians chapter 3 with me because I have heard from several of you after some of these sermons and some of you have come up to me and expressed that you have learning disabilities. Some of you have expressed that you're just not retaining knowledge like you once did. And there are real practical issues that hold you back, let's say, from rigorous Bible study. And the last thing that I want to do is condemn anybody in here that is not as theologically astute as the next person. No, no, I don't want to condemn anybody. I want to encourage. I want to build you up. And I want to show you a way forward. Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 12. And the reason I take you here is because sanctification, spiritual growth, Christ-likeness, that is the focus Look at uh, verse 10 for just an example of that. Paul says that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed, there it is, to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now, Paul gets very honest and very serious about this idea of attaining. He says, not that I have already obtained it, of course not. He says, or have already become perfect, of course not, but I press on, sound familiar, so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ. It is as Paul is saying, I am going to reach up to Christ who has laid hold of me for a purpose. I'm going to lay hold of him for the same purpose, and that is the upward call. He says, brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. He hasn't reached perfection. He hasn't reached glorification. He is not sinless. He is not a perfect Christian. He says, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. So forget your past failures. Forget what you failed to be last year. Reach forward. I like that. Reaching forward. In the Greek there, sort of emphasizes an agonizing to reach out, reach further, go further. In other words, uh, stretch yourself. Stretch yourself. Read above your pay grade. Force yourself to study something that you know nothing about. Um, One of the things I was wanting to do in our church eventually, Lord willing, if we get, um, 
if we get to meet maybe midweek sometime, is I would like to teach some books of the Bible that nobody wants to preach, like Leviticus, like Ezekiel. Who does their devotions out of Leviticus in here? Come on, besides Gigi. Robert, okay. Yeah, I've started to too because they're so Christological. I mentioned this in Sunday school, but that is something I'd like to do. Preach books of the Bible that nobody wants to preach, nobody wants to touch with a 10-foot pole. Song of Solomon. Well, some people do, but they don't do it for the right reasons. Ezekiel. Right? Jeremiah. Right? Haggai. What's Haggai about? <laughs> See? We need to learn this stuff. We need to reach forward. Sometimes I sit in my study. Some of you have seen my library at home. Sometimes I'll sit in my library and I'll look around and I go, hmm, what is the least thing I know about in here? I'm going to spend three hours looking at that right now. And that's what I do. I grab a book. I start exploring that which I just know nothing about. And I just start diving in, exposing myself to new truth, new vistas of biblical truth. Look at verse 14. This is, this is where you need to live, right here. He says, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You see that? Pressing on towards the goal. In other words, the Christian life has a telos. It has a goal. There's an aim. You're going somewhere. You're not staying stagnant. You're not staying where you are. The whole purpose of Christianity is to grow. You remember what Jesus told his disciples. He says, my will for you is that you would bear much fruit to, to be productive. That is what Christianity is all about. Let us, as, and then look at this, verse 14. Again, he brings in the same thing we're looking at in Hebrews. Let us, therefore, as many as are perfect. Wait a minute. I thought you just said you're not perfect. That's right. So here he is talking about maturity. That, Hebrew, uh, that, that Greek word there can be translated either perfect or mature. I think it should have been translated mature in the NASB. It says, as many as are mature have this attitude. Oh, I love that. Because the attitude is not, woe is me. That's not the attitude of the mature. The attitude is not, it's too late. That's not the attitude of the mature. You know what Spurgeon said when he was standing before a congregation of pastors as he himself was getting advanced in years? I love this quote from Spurgeon. He's looking out at pastors, many of them elderly, himself elderly. He says, brothers, we are starting to get old. Let's live. That is a totally different attitude than most people have in their elderly life. When this culture tells you, take a break, go on vacation, Go golfing, walk on the beach, right? Kick back, watch more television, watch, I don't know, what do they watch? The Price is Right. Watch golf. Golf is so boring, right? I like to watch golf like on a Saturday, a lazy day, just do nothing, watch nothing. Sorry if you like golf. Everything that Paul is saying here is contra-cultural against the tide of our times. 
Everything in our generation, in our culture, is telling us you are entitled to kick back. You are entitled to go easy on yourself. The worst thing I think I've ever seen in my life is going into a cancer ward or going into a hospital bed, as I've done many times, visiting people on their deathbed, and what's sitting in front of them? Television. This is how they're going to slip into eternity, wasting their brains on the most trivial, futile things imaginable, when they should be reaching for the prize, the upward call in Christ Jesus. Forget that. I, I was encouraged by one friend who I lost, 27-year-old Kevin Bundy, dear friend of mine. Six months prior to his death, we were on the basketball court playing basketball, laughing and having a good time. Six months later, leukemia took him, just like that. What was he doing on his deathbed? He was trying to learn Greek. He had somebody bring him a Greek, uh, a Greek a textbook by Mounts. I said, one of the things I want to do before I go is I want to learn New Testament Greek. So there he was on his hospital bed going through Greek flashcards. I tell you what, I don't think I've cried harder at anybody's funeral in my life. That's a beautiful example of a man who understood what it meant to reach forward. Forget what lies behind you. Even forget what lies ahead of you in the sense of who cares how long you've got to live. Live with all your might as long as you live. I have, so much, I have another sermon prepared just for that last sentence, so I better stop. Let's pray. Father, it is totally contrary to our society what Hebrews is saying here, that we should be striving for growth, that we should be pursuing maturity instead of having a lazy, lazy and lackadaisical attitude, an attitude that tells us just put it into cruise control and watch the signs go by. No, Lord, you call us to engage. You call us to be zealous, to have ardor for your word, to have a zeal, to have a passion for truth. And so, God, I pray that in the coming weeks as we study these difficult passages, as we get really into the meat of Hebrews, that you would be pleased to get us to a point where we can mature in the faith. Thank you, Lord. We pray for a maturing effect on our church as a whole. Everything that we do, our families, that we would begin to mature, that we would, in the Christian world and life view, that we would grow and increase in the knowledge of God, all for your glory, all for Christ's sake. Amen.